the West intense desire to earn a profit off of a dollar, a euro, a yen, a pound, or a shekel, and China's desire to exert its influence globally, actually exert its influence both economically and militarily around the world. China uses our greed and our avarice as their number one carrot. That is exactly how they operate. If you can't see that, you've got to be blind. Welcome back to The Breakdown with me, NLW. It's a daily podcast on macro, Bitcoin, and the big picture power shifts remaking our world. The Breakdown is sponsored by Nexo.io and produced and distributed by Coindesk. What's going on, guys? It is Tuesday, January 26th, and today I am delighted to bring you an interview with a very special guest. Now, the breakdown may seem to you like it's about Bitcoin. Perhaps you buy my idea that it's more about macro. I just happen to think that you can't really look at macro right now without spending serious time and effort on Bitcoin. But really, it's about something even larger, which is power. Specifically, how power is shifting in the world around us. Bitcoin, as my guests and I have often argued, is a tool for power redistribution. In many contexts, a tool for reclaiming power. I cover things like central bank digital currencies because they have massive power implications as well, although in a relatively opposite direction as Bitcoin. And there is another aspect of power that I think is essential to understand at the same time. This is the power balance between states. Anyone who seeks to understand the larger world we live in from an economic or political perspective must at least spend some time trying to understand the relationship between the US and China. Today's guest is one of the macro investors best known for his views on exactly that topic. Kyle Bass is the founder and chief investment officer of Heyman Capital Management. He gained notoriety for predicting and effectively betting against the U.S. subprime mortgage crisis. In a world where a lot of people put contrarian in their Twitter bios, Kyle is someone who actually walks the walk. In this conversation, we dig deep in his take on the U.S. macro economy. We chat a little bit about Bitcoin, but mostly we go deep on China his grading of the Trump administration, and the prospects for the new administration to come. Please enjoy this conversation with Kyle Bass. All right, Kyle, welcome to the show. I'm really excited to have you here on The Breakdown. Great to be here. I wanted to do a quick introduction for listeners who might not be familiar with you. And the way that I thought I'd do it just for for fun is, so the front page of of Heyman Capital Management, uh, your website, is Global Outlook Contrarian Perspective. And I'm interested on your take on what contrarian means. Obviously, this term has become almost a meme, at least in Silicon Valley, where there's an ironic herd mentality a lot of times, but I think it certainly applies to you. So I'd love for you to just introduce yourself and uh, and maybe kind of, you know, we could jump off this this idea of what it means to be a contrarian in today's world. Boy, that's a great opener. Look, I believe being a contrarian for contrarian's sake is both a blessing and a curse. And when you look at the success that we've had as a firm and I've had as, a, as an individual throughout my life, much of that success has come from betting against things as opposed to betting with things. And uh, you learn your lessons young. You get wiped out several times because, as you know, there's there's negative convexity to betting against things, i.e. there's no limit to how high things can go, and there is a limit to how low they can go. And so being long human innovation and short financial innovation is something that, that we've done over time, i.e. being short the structured securities markets during the mortgage crisis. And 
being short Ponzi schemes and frauds throughout my life uh, after doing enormous amounts of due diligence. Those have been our contrarian plays. Many of our great successes have also come from betting with the crowd, i.e., being long things, being long Lehman's restructuring debt, uh, right? Being long Argentina's uh, pre-petition debt before they restructured, you know, as a, as a sovereign, you know, those seem to be contrarian bets at the time. But in, in reality, we were betting with the central bank, with the countries, trying to help them reorder themselves. So the term, I don't think, does itself justice. I think contrarian just means that, you know, we're not out there buying every growth story hoping that the PE is a little lower than the growth and, you know, betting along with the mutual fund crowd. I just think we like to invest in global special situations. I guess the one other question there that I wanted to add, which you already got into a little bit, is, you know, so many of the folks who will know you and know your work will know you in the context of China, which is where I want to spend a lot of time today. But what are kind of broadly speaking, other types of themes that you are focused on either on a personal interest perspective, or just kind of from an investment approach perspective? And you mean now? Yeah, yeah. I mean, or, or even historically, how, how it's evolved over time. You gave kind of a, a little bit of the historical greatest hits, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm interested now, too. You know, look, back when we launched this firm that I run now, Heyman Capital, launched in 2006, we were very long Asia, believe it or not, and that's across Southeast Asia. And uh, we were short U.S. mortgage securities. And then over time, We've just kind of followed the bad assets from private balance sheets to public balance sheets and become more of a macro investor. So if you remember post-global financial crisis, we started trying to understand the size of post-countries banking systems in relation to their ability to cope with a, uh, let's say, negative move in GDP. So if you remember the European financial crisis of call it 2010, 2011, we started putting positions on in European banks and European sovereigns in 2008, believe it or not. And so you remember Iceland, Ireland, Cyprus, Greece. You remember when those sovereigns started falling like dominoes? Oh, yeah. That was just a logical move from bad private assets to public balance sheets. Those countries had to move to save the stability of their banking systems. And in doing so, it broke the countries. Then we moved on to Japan. How many times have you read an analysis of sovereign balance sheets that read, here's the grouping of sovereign on balance sheet debt to GDP. And then in parentheses, it would always say X Japan. Uh, <laughs> and you wonder why Japan blew every bell curve. And that's just because they're 20 years ahead of us in, in ruining their financial system. They had their come up in so their crash uh, in their financial system in really 1988, 89, right? Japan is where we're all headed. And so when we understand the Japanification of the world, and I think that's important to note, given, let's say, the context of you providing content to Coindesk and the crypto world, we all know where we're headed. We all know that the central banks have basically decided to tell politicians that running fiscal deficits just doesn't matter anymore. The central bank's there to print at every dip in any GDP, including the, the Wuhan flu's massive collapse in GDP globally. Um, so I think that's that has a lot to do with uh, where crypto has gone and where it's likely to go before you see um, intense regulatory and tax moves on the uh, sovereign's part. So, you know, I've just tried to follow where the world is headed and uh, get in front of it uh, a little bit. And, um, you know, sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't. And here we are today. It's super interesting. I mean, in some ways, the way that you put it, I can't exactly capture the exact way you said it, which is really crisp, but it's almost like 
I think most people would have this perception of a global investor or kind of a, a global macro investor as someone who's watching the changing political context or geopolitical, geostrategic relationships, and then tries to work backwards from there into what the implications economically are going to be. And it almost sounds like your flow is the complete opposite. You know, you're watching money move, you're watching balance sheet moves, you're watching kind of assets move through the ecosystem and kind of then uh, specking out what is likely to happen because of it in some of those dimensions that do cross into the political and social. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think so. My own view is uh, the economics of every situation dictate uh, the incentives of the participants and, and eventually whether it becomes a war or you know a hot war or a cold war. My view is it's all driven by the economics and incentives of the participants. So if you follow the economics, you can, again, get in front of the geopolitics. And so, yeah, I think I use the economics as my barometer. Awesome. Well, so I guess with that in mind, let's move into China a little bit, because I'm really excited to talk with you about this. First, you know, when did you start paying attention? Was it in that context of, of kind of watching uh, and following the economics? Yeah, yeah. So I would say 10 years ago, I would say 2010, when we were doing our work on the global financial system, uh, one couldn't avoid China. And, you know, in calling around all the sell side firms, very, very, very few sell side firms understood or had a deep understanding of how the Chinese financial system actually operates. And so we started from the ground floor up and kind of uh, just just built a model trying to understand exactly how money flows work, because you think about an economy that has a closed capital account, they pretend to be capitalists. And yet, Without U.S. dollars coming into China, China collapses, right? Their own currency uh, settles uh, in global transactions. The RMB settles is about 1.8% of global transactions. And yet that entire 1.8% is RMB converting into HKD, Hong Kong dollars, which, of course, if you net out RMB settling in, a, in a Hong Kong dollars, it's still zero around the world. So the world doesn't trust China, doesn't trust their government. And no one accepts RMB around the world. And so what's interesting is how does China operate? The only way they operate is if they coerce or steal or basically try to find a way, any way to manipulate dollars into their system. But it's like a roach motel, dollars in, but very few dollars come out. And I think people are going to end up realizing that the hard way. Yeah. So uh, it's interesting. So 10 years ago, so you were kind of, I, I don't know, this is maybe uh, overly simplistic, but we saw this kind of transition from the beginning to the end of the Obama administration over the course of those eight years, where at the beginning, there was sort of this optimism, perhaps naive right from the get-go, that China would inevitably be drawn through the powers of markets and liberal societies into sort of the order of nations as we knew it. By the end, it was very clear that that hadn't worked, that there hadn't been enough time given. And it sounds like you were kind of coming in on the sort of beginning of the middle of that. I mean, was it clear to you at that time that the U.S.'s policies towards China was just not going to accomplish what it wanted to? Yeah, you know, when you study a financial system, you end up studying the history of the financial system, the history of the country. And I would go much further back uh, in our relationship with China. You go back to Kissinger and Nixon, right? You go back to the, uh, you know, when we finally stepped off the gold standard in 1972 and uh, our strategic pivot in our in our in the depths of our Cold War with Russia, uh, we decided that we were going to pivot to China. 
uh, we were going to hug the panda and we were going to show China that if they were to ascend into a rules based system, a world where they can where they act as a positive global actor and and liberalize their economic system and, and their communistic system into something that might resemble a Western democracy over time, it would be incredibly prosperous for their people. And it would raise their GDP to staggering heights. And again, that began in the early 70s with Kissinger and Nixon. And again, we we sh we shouldn't point point the uh, the finger at any whether it's a Democrat or Republican just doesn't matter. We embraced this philosophy from 1972 until about 2016, and then we realized that uh, you know uh, China raised their their ugly head a little too soon, and we understood finally uh, how much intellectual property they were stealing around the world. We understood by watching uh, the activities of Huawei and ZTE how they bribed, cheated, and cajoled um, all of the emerging markets into using their equipment uh, and using their equipment so that they could spy on all of the data on those networks. It's important to note that the world started to figure out how China's malign intent uh, was really um, how their MO worked and, and how it worked in every different aspect of their interaction globally with either supranational institutions or bilateral agreements with various countries around the world. We now know uh, exactly what their intent is and how they operate. And again, that took a long time to figure out. And the last administration, you know, with Obama and Kurt, uh, Kurt Campbell as, as the Deputy Secretary of, uh, of State for Asia under Hillary, you know, they were still basically uh, prostrating our country to the Chinese, hoping that they would become a responsible global actor. And I think we all know now, Nathan, that, uh, that they went the other way. They became uh, more authoritarian. They became more communistic. And they, as evidenced by this morning, I know this is a, a timeless podcast, uh, but uh, you see that there are, you know, they, 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 they took Jack Ma and they sat him down and told him to behave just two years ago. You remember in 2018, they actually took his VIE shares in Alibaba and distributed them to five unknown individuals in China. And they all had the same mailing address in a rural mailbox in, 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 in the interior of China. They basically just took, took a bunch of his money away and said, you better behave. If you remember, he, he resigned immediately as CEO of, of Alibaba uh, and said he's going to be, uh, uh, he's going to pursue his philanthropic interests. And the next thing you know, he and the other executives end up owning uh, half of Ant Financial. They stole it. Like, imagine if the CEO of Microsoft came up with an idea for a business within Microsoft, and he decided that all of the executives of Microsoft were going to own 50% of that new idea, and the shareholders could have half of it. <laughs> uh, that's what happened with Ant Financial. You know, Jack and 18 others decided that half of it was theirs. In fact, a third of it was going to be Jack's. And um, I think now you're seeing China's just going to take Ant Financial and Alibaba potentially and nationalize them. That those are the real risks that people run with dealing with an authoritarian regime. So I think you have to understand the way they operate to to then make your decisions as to what are the what are the average people in China, what are the good people of China going to do with their money? Uh, and that's probably has a lot to do with uh, Bitcoin mining and and crypto assets, because if you're Chinese, 
and you want to preserve any purchasing power and you want to move out one day and get out from under the, the evil regime, you're going to have to monetize your assets one way or the other, right? So again, I think it's very germane to this discussion. Yeah, I, can, I completely agree. And it's certainly something that we spend a lot of time looking at here. Um, I, we're, I also definitely want to talk more about uh, Jack Ma and, and just sort of what the potential symbolism of that uh, of that perspective nationalization would mean in terms of international players. But I guess one more question kind of when we're on the, the in the historical bent is, how, you know, whether you think this was inevitable kind of based on the way that the system is structured and the CCP is structured versus how much it had to do with the particular of President Xi and his consolidation of power? No, I mean, I, 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 my own view is if, if you're going to run the system, the way the Standing Committee of the Politburo works and the way communism works, um, it, these are ideologies that, that are functionally incompatible, right? One uh, is an autocratic uh, totalitarian system for the leadership, and the other one is a democratic system uh, uh, that respects human rights and responsible global acting. And those fundamentally aren't, in, aren't compatible with one another. The only thing that I see, the only thread of compatibility that you see between those systems is the West's intense desire to earn a profit off of a dollar, a euro, a yen, a pound, or a shekel. Um, and China's desire to kind of exert its influence globally and, and actually exert its influence both economically and militarily around the world. And China uses our greed and our avarice as, our, as their number one carrot, right? That is exactly how they operate. They corrupt a few uh, to becoming uh, evangelical about the great Chinese miracle, um, and then they stick it to the rest. And, and again, if you can't see that, you've got to be blind. Let's talk about the shift then in in U.S. Uh, policy or, uh, with regard to China. Um, one of the interesting things that I've observed over the last four years is that I, I feel like if you were to ask a survey, a set of people who are kind of informed, you know, about economic and geopolitical issues who really didn't like President Trump, what they were going to give him credit for on one thing, it would be changing the tone with China. Um, but I guess I'm interested in your take now that we're kind of wrapping up. Uh, this administration, when it comes to the trade war, what worked, what didn't, I mean, how do you grade this, this shift in, in, in perspective or approach? Whether you love Trump or hate him, uh, everything that he did can't be put into uh, the, the, the bad bucket. Um, he has so many uh, deficiencies uh, uh, as a person and, and as a global leader. But, uh, you know, the one place where he led his team act, I wouldn't say um, unrestricted, but he let the National Security Council, the State Department, the Commerce Department, uh, and, and his trade rep, Lighthizer, he let them do their jobs. Uh, and they did a hell of a job uh, in kind of rewriting this narrative and, and actually delivering the facts, just delivering the facts of the situation. You know, um, and even DOD uh, with its written writing its DIUX report on, on intellectual property theft, which was kind of a famous 2016 and then 2017 follow-up report. If you haven't read it, I suggest you read it. Uh, it. You know, those kinds of things brought our country into kind of understanding the malign intent of the Chinese Communist Party. 
And if you remember four years ago, you know, China could do no wrong. They were our friend and all the asset management firms and, you know, the Ray Dalios and the Steve Schwartzmans couldn't wait to invest more money uh, in China at the same time espousing some ESG policies, right? Like, again, think about the fundamental incompatibility of investing in a regime that is committing ethnic and cultural genocide and has millions of, of religious prisoners in concentration camps. I mean, uh, in this day and age, it's hard to, it's, it's actually hard to think about those two things existing in the same sentence, and yet they still do. Uh, but if you think about the press, the narrative in the press over the last four years has changed dramatically. In fact, the most recent Pew poll has China polling as negatively as hedge fund managers and uh, congressmen. And so <laughs> I think, again, that, that even though we sit, I think we exist in a post-truth world and whoever puts together the, the best narrative today wins. China spends $4 billion a year putting together their own narratives or more. Uh, we don't have a narrative department. We just have uh, various departments trying to do their job uh, in the United States. So, you know, when you ask about, quote, the trade war, the way that I see it is a lot of people refer to it as Trump's trade war. Look, China's been fighting a trade war with the United States since we let them ascend into the WTO in 2001, albeit entirely too early, uh, under specific promises of, of compliance and a responsible global activity. And yet we just started fighting that war in 2016. Uh, so it's not Trump's trade war. This is China's trade war, and we're, we're just catching up. Uh, and I think that the tariffs should absolutely stay in place. And for those that don't understand tariffs, you should understand very specifically, just pick one sector, pick steel, pick aluminum, pick look, China can act as uh, with non-economic means as a, as a state actor. And you think about our aluminum business, for example, you know, uh, uh, when you look at our factories, our factories were operating, aluminum factories were operating 80, 85% to capacity um, and Chinese decided, the Chinese government decided that they wanted to put our, our aluminum uh, business out of business so that we would rely on them for all of our structural and tactical aluminum. Uh, so they, they started selling aluminum uh, at way below the cost to produce it globally. So our, in one year's time, our capacity utilization, in our factories went from 85% to 42% to where they were all hemorrhaging money. Uh, and if they effectively put our aluminum smelters out of business, we'd have to rely on them. Well, think about how much aluminum goes into our military, how much structural aluminum goes into things that protect U.S. national security. We can't possibly allow that to happen. So for those people that say all tariffs are bad, they actually don't understand how they work and how the Chinese government can act uh, without economics in mind. They can act strategically. So I think we did a great job in pushing back on the Chinese, and I think we have a hell of a lot more work to do. I just hope, I hope the new administration, I hope the Biden-Harris administration is willing to do so. Looking for the best way to stay on top of your investment game? Nexo.io has you covered in three easy steps with their high-yield savings account for digital assets. Step one, create an account at Nexo.io. Step two, Transfer assets to your secure Nexo wallet with no minimum or maximum limits on funds deposited. Step three, sit back, relax, and earn up to 12% compounding interest paid out daily on your crypto and fiat. Your passive income made simple. Get started at Nexo.io.
you have these two things that converged over the course of the last year, at least for some, which was on the one hand, a broader discussion of the the trade-offs that were made, you know, as people try to diagnose the surprise Trump victory in 2016, one of the things they pointed back to was things like the accession of China into the World, uh, the World Trade Organization in 2001, what it meant for jobs in the Rust Belt, exactly the people who flipped for Trump. So you have that kind of the, the whole like larger, uh, you know, economic context that had been brewing for a generation. But then when in the, in the wake of economic shutdowns, you had uh, massive, massive um, uh, shortages of, of PPE and medical equipment. It, it was like a, a trigger for some who, uh, for whatever reason, just hadn't thought about it this way before, that maybe things like domestic manufacturing capacity were, you know, as opposed to kind of just in time, were actual strategic issues, not just uh, kind of economic issues that you could let the relentless forces of efficiency uh, turn over. You know, I feel like there was kind of a wake up moment. And by the time you had, you know, the the, the actual elections, right? This is one era. It, it, it was really wasn't like who's who's going to be tougher on. Well, there was actually ads flying back about who was going to be tougher on China and what the best strategy for being tough tough on China was. That, that's right. I guess the the question is so going back to kind of just, just pick off pick up where you left off. What are your assessment of uh, prospects for a Biden administration? You know, I, I mean, do you think uh, are you optimistic? Are you are are you nervous? Kind of you know, and if so, what what specifically um, are are things where you kind of think that they might outperform versus underperform? Well, I'll start by saying I haven't met Jake Sullivan or Tony Blinken yet. And I think those are two uh, key uh, cabinet level positions that are going to be dealing with uh, the China threat and, and how we engage uh, with China. And, and I've, you asked if I'm, if I'm optimistic or if I'm, uh, if I'm apprehensive or frightened, I'm, I'm all of the above. Uh, and my optimism hangs on just a couple of public comments uh, that each has made. Uh, you know, Jake Sullivan has said publicly that that uh, the Biden administration will never trade human rights for a trade deal. Now, one place that Trump would never go is he would never go to the forced or, or live organ harvesting and the and the concentration camps of the religious prisoners, the Uyghurs, the the Tibetans and the, the Mongolians, uh, where we have literally millions of people. Our intelligence agencies have uh, time series photographs of the concentration camps, of the crematoria they're building at these concentration camps. It's literally Auschwitz all over again. And the only reason the world is not up in arms about it is the Chinese won't let cameras in there. Um, and so I think that if Jake Sullivan holds true to his word, and says the new administration is going to prioritize uh, the respecting of human rights in our in our trading counterparties. Well, then China is actually going to is in for a worse ride than they were with the Trump administration. So I'm cautiously optimistic that that Jake Sullivan is going to end up being a man of his word. Recently, Tony Blinken, uh, uh, who will be the new Secretary of State, uh, tweeted that uh, he stands with the people of Hong Kong and he is. Uh, 100% against the arrests of the 53 or so odd uh, pro-democracy lawmakers uh, arbitrarily from their their homes in, in the last few weeks. So uh, again, I'm cautiously optimistic based upon a couple of the things I've seen that these that these two 
a key and pivotal members of the Biden administration will be uh, 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 focusing on going forward. You kind of presaged my next question, which is what you see as the major fault lines. Obviously, there's so many. There's Hong Kong, there's the Uyghurs, there's this question of infectious disease in that relationship. There's uh, technology uh, and privacy, which you kind of intimated at. Um, there's currency infrastructure. I'm not sure how much you've been paying attention to the DCEP and Digital Yuan project. And then, of course, there's Taiwan, which we just got a, a major update um, from Secretary Pompeo, uh, just about, uh, it might've even been today or yesterday or something like that, or the last couple of days, um, changing the way that, uh, the sort of self-imposed restrictions on how the U S executive branch interacts with them, you know, of, of these, is there, is it, is it just all one big melange of issues or, or do you see specific issues more likely to become the source or flashpoint of consternation more quickly? Yeah, that's a, a great question. Look, I the way I organize these things in my mind um, is there are four wars that we can be fighting with China. Um, and, and again, compartmentalize them for a minute. Number one, uh, we can be fighting a, a kinetic war uh, where we actually go, go to a physical war with China, where the U.S. has the, uh, the number one war department in the world. Uh, and and we're, the, we're amongst the best in the world at, at this type of conflict. No, no one wants to engage in that type of conflict. And thank God we're not currently in one. Um, we're prepared for that, though. Um, the second kind of war we can fight with them is, is, is a cyber war. We've been fighting a cyber war with China uh, for the last 20 years plus, uh, and it's only intensified. And let's argue that I, one could argue that we have top we're one of the top two cyber uh, war specialists uh, in the world. We have a great war department. The other two wars we can fight with them are an economic war, which China has been fighting with us since 2001. Uh, and we don't have an economic war department, right? We deal with China's economic moves more on an ad hoc fly ball basis, whether it's the U S trade rep's office, whether it's the commerce department, the state department, or even DOD, uh, and even the executive branch, we deal with, with economic war issues again, on a one-off basis. Uh, a la carte. And I think it's important that the United States must stand up kind of an economic war department. Uh, and and uh, I think hopefully we'll get there. Uh, and China has been fighting that war with us for 20 years. And we're, we're, we're not doing a great job, but we're just starting to push back in the areas that we need to be pushing back. And the last place uh, that we can be having war with them is, is propaganda slash data. Uh, and China has a has a propaganda department that fights that war every single day, and we don't have one. And so when I think about compartmentalizing the conflict, I think about those four compartments and where we need to uh, do better uh, is on the economic war front and the uh, propaganda war front. And I hope the Biden administration starts thinking uh, in those terms. Media content creators, we all love plumbing for historical analogy by way of explanation. And one of the big questions has been, are we in already a Cold War with China? I mean, it sounds to me from your answer to that last question that that's the wrong question to ask. But just what are we, you know, I guess is, is, the, is the question. Well, I mean, it, however you define Cold War or Hot War, we are fighting three of four wars with China. They are not our friend. They are not a responsible global actor. They are a parasitic uh, relationship 
with regard to the U.S. dollar and our and our relationship with them, they employ slave labor. They steal three hundred to six hundred billion dollars of our intellectual property every year. They lie, they cheat, they bribe, they steal all over the world, and yet we still interface with them for one reason and one reason only: greed and avarice. We can't wait to figure out how to sell. 1.4 billion people in China, something that we can make or invest in Chinese enterprises that we hope we can make uh, an RMB slash dollar in. There is actually, if you look at this empirically, if you just look at the data and the facts, there is actually not a reason for us to engage with this country. Do you think that... Well, so one, I guess I'm interested in, you know, we've, we've talked a little bit about the changing attitudes in America on kind of a broad consumer level towards China. Do you see a similar shift in the business to business relationship, a recalcitrance of companies to defend uh, China and, and sort of, you know, China global markets like they used to? And I guess kind of let's pair that question with same question, but for other allies like Europe, I guess where where does both inside the country and the rest of the world stand as the Biden administration does go? go into this? You know, it's, um, I, I was in the uh, unique position of, of chief of the risk management committee for the largest public endowment in the country. Um, just, just a couple of years ago, I was the head of the risk committee for the University of Texas endowment. We have, you know, a little over $50 billion. And um, I was in, in charge of thinking about policy as it relates to investing in these, in China and other regimes that, uh, that um, let's just say, are, are, are on many of the restricted lists uh, at, at Commerce and State and DRD. But the way, the way that I think institutional capital thinks about investing in China uh, has changed dramatically over the last two years. Uh, and you, as, as this administration has, has, as you probably saw, leaked the names of, of uh, 50 plus institutions that are Chinese military institutions or do business with the Chinese military, we have essentially blacklisted them from investment in the U.S. And rightly so. Um, secondarily, when you think about Europe, the problem that the Biden administration is going to have with their approach uh, to China, you've probably seen this in the press, is they say, we are going to look to our allies to develop a, uh, a multilateral approach to uh, the relationship with China. Well, the problem with multilateral um, dealings is you're only as strong as your weakest link. And what China is so good at is corrupting um, leadership in, in some of the nations that we deem to be our allies. When I did that analysis for University of Texas, uh, we did a deep, deep, deep dive into both uh, corporate and government dealings with uh, regimes like Cuba, uh, China, Venezuela, and again, uh, North Korea. And what I found was Germany is the single worst offender in the world as far as the amount of business being done by German companies or the German government with the Chinese government, with the Cuban government, with the Iranian government. It was shocking to me to find one of our top allies being the number one offender. So if we're going to have to look to Germany to form some sort of consensus on how we're going to deal with China, then we are in, we are in big trouble. Um, all of the engines that propel the Chinese nuclear submarines are made in Germany. All the quiet diesel engines 
are sold to China as, quote, recreational engines. And they put them on Chinese submarines, and Germany knows it. And so until we root out all of the corruption that China has infected the world's, our world's partners with, then looking to multilateral institutions for us to develop our policy is going to be a failure. And I hope that doesn't happen. I guess as an asset manager, this gets into a little bit about what you were just saying. How do you invest against these sort of macro themes? You know, like you clearly have a, a very strong position that's informed by a ton of research uh, and just digging into these issues. How does that translate into the decisions you make from a financial perspective? So it's a good question. In the past, it was a lot easier. And and what I mean by that is today, you you and I both know that the world's central banks have printed more money in the last 12 months than they have ever printed in a 12-month period. And that that stands for China the, and the rest of the G7 and all the rest of the world's bank, central banks that it can expand their balance sheets at will. And so there's so much money moving around the world. Look at what's happening to commodities today. I don't know how much attention you pay to corn, wheat, soybeans, um, the price of everything is skyrocketing. And literally in the last few months, we're going to get to a point where we're going where the vaccine is going to be effective and it will develop some herd immunity. And I think it will happen in mid 2021. I think you'll see hospitalizations collapse in February. And so in that world, you really don't want to bet against much, right? What you want to do is figure out how to um, how to avoid negative real rates, which which that's what's going to happen. And I think that's, again, one of the reasons why the crypto markets are surging is the millennials look to crypto because they believe scarcity equals value. Um, I, I don't believe that, uh, but I do think that all assets, including crypto, will trade higher uh, over the next 12, 24 months. And I think Finding the assets that have the least amount of volatility and the most predictable returns is is the challenge. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think it's fascinating. I was having a conversation with someone earlier where one of the reasons that Bitcoin is such an interesting asset to so many is that it 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 sort of uh, has this benefit where positioned as an inflation has because of the uh, uh, because of the scarcity of supply it fits in that but then when everything is just surging too it functions as a risk asset because it has so much more to grow to mature so it's kind of has this this fascinating dual profile that I think a lot of people are are latching onto right now. Um, That's right. So I, I guess, you know, you, you again kind of already started to answer this a little bit, but I want to just ask, what are the other major macro themes outside of China that you're watching, paying attention to into the new year? I mean, it sounds like the, the, the mega context is certainly just the sort of everything rally in the context of a negative interest rate world. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that is the key. I think you're going to see just assets themselves all together. You're going to see real estate prices move higher. You're going to see prices of equities move higher. And the question is, what's your real rate of return, right? I.e., what's the inflation rate versus the rate of return that you're getting? Uh, you know, if if the new if the Democratic administration is successful in in let's saying in let's say uh, pushing a fifteen dollar minimum wage across the United States, you know, get ready for fourteen dollar Big Macs because it's going to happen right away. Um, and if, if we're successful in giving everybody a free $2,000 check, 
Well, you probably saw this, that, that autos in the U.S. had a 13% year-over-year increase in sales in December alone. Well, you know, we're in the midst of a really tough recession, and yet things are flying off the shelves. You can't buy certain things because everybody has so much cash. The trillions of dollars in extra new deposits in, bank, in banks in the U.S., that's why banks are doing so well. The yield curve steepening, and all of a sudden, you're going to see inflation. So I, I think trying to understand what an inflationary environment looks like is something today's millennials and truly you know, today's investors that are 50, 60, 70 years old probably don't remember what happened in 1978, 79, 80, 81, right? Mm -hmm. Those are worlds that are really difficult to navigate. Um, the crypto world is focused on the right issues. I think they need to be thinking more about diversification. Now, I, all I'm saying is you shouldn't put 100% of your assets in crypto because you think, it's the home run of all home runs. I think you should be having a, a small percentage of your assets in crypto and larger percentages and other things. I think most of the the crypto world is certainly at a stage for, for many people where it's less about a concerted investment strategy and more about it, almost this gateway drug to learning about these issues, you know? Right. Which is, I think, a powerful thing. But, you know, a part of part of what I try to do with this show, at least, is, you know, help bring on people who can help set the context with uh, these larger kind of global issues. I guess as you look into 2021, um, what do you think as a, as a whole we're not paying enough attention to that we should be paying more attention to? I think that there is, um, there is money to be made um, where you can make positive real rates of return, even given inflation. If you focus on population uh, dynamics and immigration dynamics just within the U.S., and you understand that there are people moving from the coast, moving away, high, moving away from high-tax, mismanaged jurisdictions into low-tax, much better managed jurisdictions, whether you're talking about Tennessee or Florida or Texas or Colorado as destinations for those moving from New York and all of California. Um, there are many things that you can do to get in front of this wave of people uh, that is going to come across the United States um, here in the next decade or so. And you can do it uh, in a way where you own real assets and you're creating value yourself and doing things, maybe things that are environmentally positive while you make money. And, and um, you know, sometimes in your life, you kind of make those life changes and life choices. And it's something that I'm very excited about because I think these, these population demographics and dynamics are only going to intensify uh, over the next decade. I think you've only seen the first wave of things to come. So that's kind of the beauty of the United States and the American dream is you can go pursue these things, um, you know, if you see them. Um, and so it's, it, it's something that's uh, exciting. It's a new frontier and it's something very much like crypto where it became a new frontier. What um, I would say as far as eight or nine years ago, yeah, I mean, it's really fascinating. One of the things that I talk about with, uh, you know, almost everyone on the show eventually is kind of what of the shifts that we've experienced over the course of the last year are uh, are, are likely long term, right? Not coming back even when we hit some sort of herd immunity or vaccines rolled out. And this shift, the 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 opening of uh, people moving and 
their jobs not really being willing to or able to say that they shouldn't just log in from their computers is is so significant in a way that's not just about how the corporation functions, but has second order and third order effects for the entire way people structure their lives, how they prioritize different things. I mean, and we're starting to see the thing that's crazy is how fast we're seeing those second order effects kick in the cost of lumber going back to things that are screaming up, for example, because of the massive amount of construction, the introduction of I mean, how many pitches have come across your desk for companies that want to go buy houses and have them, you know, suburban rentals, right? Or, or, or you know, uh, rural rentals even, you know, so people can live in houses, you know, that, that they can afford, but that are rented rather than buying because the mortgage process is all janky. You know, like there are these just things that are happening so quickly and it's just probably scratching the surface of these larger issues. Combine that with exactly what you said, the opportunity, you know, people I think scoff a lot at, um, the idea of individuals moving for tax mobility when it comes to leaving the country, right? A lot of people in crypto, it's probably one of the most dynamic sets when it comes to people who would actually pick up and move to, you know, some other jurisdiction. Still, when it comes to, you know, actually leaving the U.S., it's such a huge cost. Whereas going from New York to Florida, to your point, is orders of magnitude uh, less less or easier for some people to countenance you know so i think it's a a really interesting space to play there's going to be a lot of room to uh to to kind of observe but also get out ahead of things in that in that domain so that's really exciting to see it'll be fun to see what you do there thank you and i appreciate it and i wish you the best in this podcast and uh yeah, we'll probably be talking more about crypto in the future Awesome. Well, let's uh, let's make sure to check back in in a few months uh, when uh, when you're when you're up and running with everything and your new observations. But until then, Kyle is awesome to have you on the show. Really appreciate your your perspective and, and the way that you look at things. So, uh, thanks again, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Absolutely. Good luck. So, a few quick reflections on the show. As you can tell, Kyle has a very distinct and very clear perspective on China. There are many in the business world who disagree. There remain huge advocates like Ray Dalio. For me, I think we have to be willing to grapple with the fact that after two decades of deeper integration, China has not validated the thesis, held by many, that full integration into the global financial order would necessarily bring with it an emergent liberalism and political opening. Now, what the right strategy to deal with this is, is up for debate. But we have to have this card conversation. It has to be new and contextual to the facts and evidence we actually see, not what we wish were true. For a different perspective on China, I recommend you go back to my episode with Graham Webster. Graham is the editor-in-chief at the DigiChina Project at Stanford and is someone who I know thinks intensely about these issues, often coming to different conclusions than Kyle. That episode is more of a primer how we got here in terms of this bilateral relationship, and so it might be a good place to start. Either way, I hope you enjoyed this conversation. I hope you learned something. I hope it provokes some new thought. I certainly know I did. Until tomorrow, guys, be safe and take care of each other. Peace.